ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. It is a truth universally acknowledged that it is always the right time to read, talk, and think about Pride and Prejudice. But why is it this book that we universally acknowledge? Why has Pride and Prejudice lasted for over two centuries as the most famous romance novel of all time? This season of Hot and Bothered, award-winning journalist Lauren Sandler and me, Vanessa Zoltan, are looking closely at Pride and Prejudice, interviewing experts and trying to figure out what this book has taught generations of readers about love. Listen to Hot and Bothered wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Which national security news should we actually be freaked out about? That's this week on Foreign Policy Playlist. I'm your host, Laura Rossbrow-Tellum, and for today's show, we want to share a segment from Rational Security, a weekly podcast from Lawfare. Rational Security is a weekly roundtable show with Quinta Jurassic, Scott R. Anderson, and Alan Rosenstein about national security news. I actually had the chance to chat with all of them. I think it's my first time interviewing three hosts at the same time. So you can be the judge of how that went. Hi, Scott, Quinta, and Alan. I think this is the first time we've had three hosts on one episode. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having us. We're excited to be here. Thanks for having us. Yeah, it's great. It's a, it's a, it's a hat trick of, of hosts. Yeah. So tell me about this. I know that you all joined as co-hosts of Rational Security, which is a lawfare podcast. It's been around for a while. But you're a new team, you're a new set of co-hosts. You started about a year ago. So what was that process like starting up this podcast that, you know, people had come to know and having a new take on it? Well, you know, we inherited a phenomenal community of rational security listeners, people who had been with the prior hosts for several years, but the rational security listeners tend to be the most engaged, the most responsive, really like the most community based of the folks who who read and consume lawfare content on a regular basis. And so our goal really was to try and find a way to bring in new voices that can maintain that community, hopefully keep building on it, but also expand it beyond the prior co-hosts that had done it for so long and begin bringing in other guests from kind of the broader lawfare universe. So we have the three of us who are the regular weekly co-hosts um, who do it almost every week, if not every week. And then we try and rotate in other folks we work with, other colleagues, in addition to outside guests, just so people get a sense of the kind of personalities and conversations we have behind the scenes at Lawfare that don't always show in our more kind of formal, conventional podcasts and written products. And yeah, tell and also tell us a bit about Lawfare for folks that aren't familiar with Lawfare. Yeah, so Lawfare is, um, well, it's a lot of things. I, we call it sort of an online magazine of national security, legal and policy news and analysis, where national security is defined quite broadly. It started as just this little group blog, um, and it was just an opportunity for them to write about national security issues. And just over time, it's grown. Where we think we make the biggest impact is in getting the details right, doing the work, reading the laws, you know, really be getting quite wonky, but also doing it from the perspective 
of journalists rather than academics. And I think that actually taking a more journalism forward approach to this has been really, really important because I think that our products have become much more accessible and we've gotten a pretty great following, not just among policy people, but also just among a lot of just ordinary people who want to know what in the world is going on. Alan's totally on point there. And I will say, you know, I think there are one of the, the big innovations of the site is that you can get a lot of mileage after out of just reading the documents, uh, an enormous amount of folks will and, not, and linking to them <laughs> and linking to them. Exactly. Exactly. You know, if there's a legal filing, just reading it and saying what's in it can be of enormous use, not only to folks who are national security practitioners and lawyers, but also to members of the general public who just want to know what's going on. And early in the Trump administration, we had a bit of an inside joke that, you know, our, our value add was that we would tell members of the public when they needed to panic and when they didn't. Uh, hopefully there's there's less cause for panic, uh, but I do think that that is a, a worthwhile thing to keep in mind for us that, you know, we will give you the, the honest take and we'll tell you when you really need to freak out. So what are the things that you think we need to freak out about these days? Qu- Quinta, you're, you're our freak out expert, I think. You should, you should know. Yeah, why don't you take the lead on this, Q? <laughs> yeah, I, I walked right into that one. <laughs> so I, I walked right into that one. Um, I do think this goes back to kind of the, the point uh, that we were making earlier about how our definition of national security is pretty broad. So when Lawfare started, there was a lot of writing about surveillance law and policy, a lot of writing about, for example, uh, targeted killing you know, how the United States was prosecuting uh, the, the war on terror. Recently, we've kind of expanded that to also include questions about the health of American democracy and the stability of the rule of law. And we've done a great deal of coverage about uh, authoritarian threats to the rule of law in the United States. And I think our, our coverage has sort of, you know, sought to illuminate different aspects of that, that American democracy is perhaps not in as stable a place as it has typically been. In and that the future is very uncertain. Yeah, I, I think there are a you know, number of things that people should be concerned about. Though, again, I, I think maybe panicking is, is never super useful. It's kind of just more exhausting than anything. But I do agree with Quinta that, you know, if you're looking for one thing to really focus on, I do think it has to be the health of American democracy. And, you know, I'm personally waiting with a lot of dread, to be honest, for Donald Trump to announce his candidacy for 2024, um, as the rumor mill seems to suggest he's going to do sooner rather than later. And while Lawfare does not take editorial positions on things, there's no party line, you know, in terms of what Lawfare writers write, I do think that there's a a pretty strong consensus, to put it mildly, that Trump is a real threat to American democracy. And he's a threat, honestly, whether he runs or not, just based on his effect on the Republican Party. But if he does decide to run in 2024, I I think that it's going to be hard not to always be talking about this possibility for the next two years. Hopefully won't crowd everything else out, right? That's not good for American democracy either to just endlessly talk about Trump, but you kind of can't avoid it. And I'll, I'll just put in one more uh, note here is that at the same time that we're worried about our domestic American democracy and political system, we're also facing an unprecedented challenge in the international community to really the most direct challenge of the global international order that we've seen in the post-World War II era, and that is the war in Ukraine. And that also is something that really falls core in our orbit, in part because uh, sometimes it's very hard to dig into the nitty-gritty, the understanding of domestic legal authorities, international legal authorities, how those intersect with policy of different stripes to really get a grasp of what's happening at the more granular level just from headlines. We dig a little deeper. Yeah, you actually talked about this on a recent episode about you know, new weapons that were coming into Ukraine. You want to chat a little bit about that? 
Sure. Uh, you know, in one of our last episodes, we had a, a discussion about the uh, HIMARS system, U.S. manufactured set of rocket system that the Ukrainians have been using for very high efficiency against uh, Russian artillery targets and ammunition kind of stockpile targets and that they have been very vocal in seeking more of from the United States. But that has in turn raised some concerns about escalation. This fits into a longer conversation we've been having for several months, which is how much can the United States and Western allies, particularly European allies, do to support the Ukrainians without pushing into that zone that everyone wants to avoid, which is a direct conflict with Russia or putting us too close to that. Uh, you know, a lot of our conversation focuses on how much do we weigh that risk of escalation versus the effects on the ground? What are the real red lines for escalation based off what we've seen, what international law tells us about lines of responsibility, um, how the Biden administration and allied governments have been approaching this. It's one of these issues we've come back to a few times over the last few months because there's a constant moving target. And what do you think is different this time around around international law? Really, with the Ukraine conflict, you've got this moment where the international community is persuaded that there really is a threat to the post-World War II international system, which essentially says as a foundational principle States should not be using armed force or the threat of force to claim territory. And that's pretty squarely what Russia is doing in Ukraine. And in response to that, we've seen international legal arguments about how far can countries that claim to be neutral, that claim to not being a part of this conflict, push the envelope in providing support to one of the core parties, in this case, Ukraine. And that's the kind of difficult line that we've seen kind of certain evolutionary steps in how people think about international law in certain regards, how exactly we calibrate things like foreign military sales, foreign military assistance, training, collaboration. And every step of those activities has raised a new complicated set of international law questions and often domestic law questions that certainly lawyers and government are wrestling with and that we try and wrestle with to help people understand the conversations like that are likely happening and how we see those playing out in the policy decisions that are being made. So my last question is, you all do an interesting thing with your episodes, which is that you start it with this kind of chit chat, informal, totally unrelated, just funny segment before a rather heavy podcast about national security. Why did you decide to do that? Quinta, I think I think you should take this one. Well, I, I'm glad that you think that we're funny because sometimes we, we wonder <laughs> that we're just cracking jokes we into the void. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think it's a nice way to kind of, you know, set up the, the group dynamic, right? One of the things that we're trying to do with the show is not just have it be, you know, a discussion of these topics because that's something that you can get in many places, but, you know, you're sort of sitting down with us and having this chat with a, a group of friends and so hopefully it offers a little bit of a, a peek into that dynamic um, and, and a way to add some character to discussions of issues that many people might think of as dry or technical. And so it, uh, it can be nice to, you know, uh, line that up with discussions of things like uh, Scott's cocktail habits or Alan's loss of his appendix, as listeners will hear about in our most recent episode. I didn't lose it. I know where it is. It's just not inside of me anymore. Um, Honestly, there's also just a really simple answer, which is I really like my co-hosts and we really like each other. And so when we get together, we just start messing around and it's sufficiently funny, or at least we think it's sufficiently funny and enough of our audience think it's sufficiently funny that why not just put that in there? And so it's honestly a pretty faithful reflection into the vibe of the three of us and the vibe of Lawfare. And we think that's something really nice and I think unique, to be perfectly honest. Um, and we want to share that with the audience. 
Yeah, I think if there's one thing that captures the tone we're trying to get in this new version of rational security, although it may have applied to the old one too, is that this these are the conversations we are having around the table when we're in the office. And they're great conversations. Some of the best parts about working with all of our colleagues, including Alan uh, and Quinta, is just these great conversations we have with often have very serious topics mixed with humor, a bit of gallows humor, sometimes a little dark humor, but nonetheless. And these topics are interesting. They're stimulating to talk about, even if they are serious and kind of dry. And, and we try and bring all that out in our conversations to whatever extent we can. Any last thoughts? Not really. <laughs> Boom. Thanks for letting us spread the word. There's a, you know, there's a lot of, lot of good podcasts out there and yours is great. And we're, we really appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, thank you. Well, thank you so much. And I have to say, I feel like they're really sort of sister podcasts. I feel like folks who listen to Rational Security would get a lot out of Foreign Policy Playlist and vice versa. So we're, oh, totally. we're really happy to have you on. Thank you so much. You just heard from Scott R. Anderson, Quinta Jurassic, and Alan Rosenstein from the Lawfare podcast, Rational Security. Now you're going to hear several parts from last week's show, their cute little intro, and then a segment about the high Mars rocket system in Ukraine. They can take it from here. I feel like when Gwyneth Paltrow and the cult play dude consciously uncoupled, but for me, it was me and my appendix. Do you feel lighter? That's what I was going to say. It's like you've gone on a very aggressive weight loss campaign. <laughs> well, but I, yeah, I actually want to know how much did you have a pre and post weighing so we can know how much your appendix weighed? I am very disappointed that they did not let me look at it. They didn't let me take it home in like a mason jar with formaldehyde. They just they just yanked it out. And then, you know, it's like I don't even own it anymore. But the good news, I mean, there's lots of good news. Man, I got to say, laparoscopic surgery is a medical miracle. I mean, I don't recommend it like recreationally, but you need to have your appendix removed. Maybe, maybe once for the experience. Yeah, I mean, exactly. compared to dying of appendicitis, it's a <laughs> oh, walk in the park. So much, so much better. But, but fortunately, now uh, I have a, like a titanium staple in me forever. And according to the nurse, I can now I mean, can officially call myself a bionic man. So this was this was a you know it was a great experience overall. You have to worry about setting off uh, like airport alarms now. Like does TSA pre-check an absolute necessity for you? You know I I don't. But it is funny how many people like like how many nurses, anesthetists, and surgeons were all like, no, don't worry, <laughs> you will not you will not light up the metal detector. I think though you should like now make a point of carrying inappropriate objects onto airplanes. And whenever you get you beep, you're like, no, nah, it's just the staple <laughs> in my appendix, the titanium staple. I am the. It's not my man. jar with my little appendix in it that I'm carrying with me for no good reason. It is amazing how such a small, small organ can cause such monumental problems. <laughs> it's a, it's an argument against intelligent design, you might say. <laughs> oh my god. Uh, yeah. Kind of against evolution too, though, because don't you think we would have lost those things a while ago? No, man, because it's not—it's not causing harm. Alan's already reproduced; his genes are <laughs> safe. <laughs> yeah, Alan, if this had been a couple of years ago, buddy, then <laughs> this would be an evolutionary deficit. I love how, according to Quinta, like I have fulfilled my—you evolutionary fulfilled purpose. your evolutionary purpose. <laughs> Time to die. Oh, wait a minute! Wait a minute! He's fulfilled his evolutionary purpose once. <laughs> genes want. 
uh, hundreds of replications. Oh, oh, I don't, I don't think anyone, I don't think anyone wants that in or outside my household. <laughs> listening to Foreign Policy Playlist. We'll be right back. My name's Kurt Jaimungo, and this is the Theories of Everything podcast, the show where we bring rigor to mathematics, physics, and consciousness, exploring grand unified theories, as well as free will and God, even exploring aliens with former CIA Lou Elizondo, heated debates on metaphysics with Kastrup and Verveke. Imagine you are an organism that spans a galaxy. How does the universe look to you? Type in theories of everything on YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, all platforms. So, uh, so now we're going to talk about, I actually have no idea how people pronounce this acronym. Is it HIMARS? HIMARS. <laughs> I'm not going to do the Tommy Wiseau impression. Uh, it's so high Mars. High Mars? No, it okay. It just gets funnier um, and funnier the more I think about it. <laughs> so this is High Mars, which stands for, and I looked this up, High Mobility Advanced Rocket System. Uh, so this is a weapon system of which the U.S. and other allies recently passed a handful to Ukraine. It seems to be making a pretty significant difference, potentially, um, in the ongoing Ukrainian effort against Russia in the the country's east. And as part of that, there's also been a uh, heated debate, I think it's fair to say, about what the U.S. should do here going forward. Is this a a opportunity to send even more of these systems to Ukraine and kind of help the Ukrainians uh, seize the advantage? Is that too dangerous insofar as it could be provoking more of a direct conflict with Russia, at least in in Russia's perspective. Um, Ukraine has been lobbying, I think, pretty heavily for for more of these systems. So, Ben, I know you've been watching the Ukraine conflict very closely. I'm I'm curious as a as an initial matter if you think it's correct that these systems have made that big of a, a difference, and then also, you know, what what to think about this policy question. Yeah, so there's no question that in uh, the short term, they have made a very substantial difference. Uh, and the reason is twofold. Um, one is that they have allowed uh, the Ukrainians to hit with uh, real precision these major ammunition dumps that the Russians have, they've known the locations of, but they haven't been able to hit precisely before. And so you know, now they are able to hit them at quite great distance. The second is that the artillery batteries themselves are vulnerable to these. And, uh, you know, being able to aim well matters. And U.S. Uh, weapons are just in a different league from everyone else's in terms of the ability to hit things accurately from a distance. It is hard to overstate the excitement that these uh, weapons have generated in Ukraine. You will uh, notice if you Google, if you uh, search on Twitter for the phrase HIMARS o'clock, uh, you will find that it is used uh, just about every evening, Ukraine time, for that point in time where uh, this is the, you know, where the sun goes down and all of a sudden a bunch of Russian ammunition depots and uh, positions get blown up. There is an important note of caution here, and it is uh, uh, was 
ably articulated uh, in a conversation between Michael Corman and, and Dmitry Alperovich on, on a recent uh, podcast of theirs. You know, wars are not static things in which one weapon system suddenly changes everything. That happens, but then the other side adapts. And so, you know, there's no question that in the short term, the HIMARS are making a, a significant difference. The Ukrainian enthusiasm for the idea that it is the game changer assumes that you're playing a, a, a sort of one level game, right? Uh, you're not. You're playing a, uh, a multi-iteration game, and the Russians will adapt to this. Uh, that said, is it an important weapon system for the Ukrainians? Absolutely. That brings me briefly to the policy question. You know, the Ukrainian need for these are extreme. I think we should be facilitating as much delivery of as useful weapon systems as humanly possible. Uh, there's a lot of anxiety in the administration about the range of, you know, some of the, the longer range systems that could reach into Russia, that could, you know, have offensive capability. I honestly do not share that concern. Uh, my view is that, and has been from the beginning, that there is greater risk right now of deterring ourselves than there is of provoking Putin. And uh, I have seen very limited evidence that there that Putin even really has much capacity to escalate here. And I think we have uh, a lot of concern that is, you know, the, the greater concern is inaction than action. And yes, I get accused every day of being a warmonger who wants to trigger World War III whenever I make that point. I want to just briefly riff off the, this last point Ben made about Putin's lack of capacity for escalation. And, and you know, one thing that I found really interesting, obviously the, the specific weapon systems at issue are impressive and, and, you know, they have their tactical advantages and disadvantages and whatnot. But one thing that has struck me is that the sheer effectiveness that they have is an indication that, you know, the Russians are at a very bad margin in this war right now. I mean, you know, everyone has their favorite Russian-Ukraine military analyst on Twitter, right? But I do think there is a kind of consensus that the Russian military, right? I think it's the third largest military in the world. I mean, nuclear power. I mean, these, these are serious people has committed something like 85 or 90% of their forces to fairly ineffectively occupy 15% of Ukraine. I mean, it, it's, it's, when you think about it in this perspective, it's completely insane. And so they are at the absolute, absolute margin of what they can do. And these rocket launchers, which are, again, they're impressive, but this isn't like magic, right? They're just rocket launchers, um, are having this extraordinary effect. And it just, I think, really goes to show that, man, the Russian military is screwed. Like they are just in a terrible, terrible position. And there's just no world in which this ends well for them. You know, that, of course, and I suspect this is what the Biden administration is concerned about. You know, that is what then leads Putin to start taking bigger and bigger risks. And then we start talking about nuclear weapons, et cetera, et cetera. And so I understand the level of, of caution. But it does all seem to come back to the, the fact that, um, you know, for fairly small gains, and again, none of this is to minimize the toll on Ukraine, obviously, but for in the grand scheme of things, fairly small territorial gains, Russia has utterly expended itself. And it's just, it's wild to see. 
Yeah, I, I think that's generally right. But I, I think there's a little more strategic context around this that's worth thinking about. There's kind of like a multi-level process that's kind of set out signaling that the administration, in my view, is kind of engaging in here. And we see this happen every time there is one of these new weapons about, is this the thing that's going to make a big difference? And there's reluctance among certain American quarters, often very openly trumpeted um, by folks in the Biden administration, or like not so subtly leaked from DOD saying, oh, we're a little worried about escalation around this stuff. We're talking about internally. It slows a little bit of the role going to the Ukrainians. We see kind of a public pressure campaign. A lot of it's very genuine for people who support Ukraine. Frankly, some of it probably is strategic. I have no doubt in putting pressure on the administration to say, no, these are real big things. All of a sudden, we know what a HIMARS is, and we think everybody needs to have it or else we're taking it easy on Putin. You know, that's not a coincidence that that, that keeps happening, like just like it did with javelins and F-16s and sort of other things. And then most of the time, the Biden administration ends up caving, or at least visibly caving, saying, okay, we relent. We will give this to them. But we thought about it very carefully. I think this is mostly a dance by the Biden administration. I think this is mostly the Biden administration underscoring the necessity of giving time and pacing and signaling a desire not to escalate to Russians and showing how seriously they take it. The real lines for escalation the Biden administration drew very early uh, and very savvily, I think, actually in a way that I didn't appreciate at the time. Very early, they said, we're not sending ground troops into Ukraine and we're not going to support Ukrainian operations in Russia. They may do them, but we're not going to directly support them. Those are the two big red lines that seem to still be in place. And that's the important kind of conditionality that they always emphasize when they give these weapons to the Ukrainians. And it did cause some problems. So like with the F-16, there was a concern about like, well, what if it's perceived as operating out of Germany if they fly the planes directly from Germany to Ukrainian territory? That caused a little bit of, I think, a genuine headache, although even that, I think, was a little overblown. There's a good argument that that just wasn't the right kind of weapon set to transfer the Ukrainians. A lot of this is just about signaling and, and and saying, well, look, we want to make clear to Russia and to the world that we are not the aggressor. We are not escalating. In fact, we're trying to counter push back against those narratives. But still, we're going to give the Ukrainians what they want. And so far, there hasn't been many signs. They're seriously um, going to put major obstacles there. Instead, of, it's a matter of allowing for time to allow for these dance. That may be frustrating for folks on the ground. I'm sure it is. And it does. We shouldn't have any illusions. That doesn't mean, you know. People are dying who might not die otherwise if these weapons got there faster. But it also is a way of signaling, again, this both, frankly, keeping the international community united or relatively united and putting pressure on Russia, maybe giving more people in, uh, and by um, hopefully signaling to Russia, again, that's how carefully these efforts are being made to not escalate, because there is certainly much more the United States could do. Yeah, I agree very much with that characterization of the dance, and it's one of the reasons I've really stayed out of the uh, debates over which specific systems should and shouldn't go. Uh, I do think that there is one element to the dance that Scott doesn't mention that I, I think is actually really important to it, which is the almost catastrophic failure of communications between Ukraine and the West uh, in the run-up to the war which we've all agreed to paper over, but was actually a disaster. And both sides bear some responsibility for it. So the American position was, hey, we're saying in public, this is going to happen. You guys are going to get fucking invaded. Get ready. Do something about it. Ukrainian position, including that of the sainted uh, Volodymyr Zelensky, was uh, nah, it's not going to happen. You know, chill out. We're going to, we're going to have parties in Kiev. 
but if you're serious about this, why aren't you giving us weapons, right? And the the American position was, hey, we're giving you warning. You're really, this is really going to happen. And there was a sort of frustration with, with uh, the degree to which the intelligence warnings were not taken seriously. The Ukrainian positions were, you know, you're overreacting, but if you're serious about this, why aren't you giving us serious weapons? And I think there was actually a lot of truth in both sides. I, I think when the history of that period is written, Zelensky will have something to answer for with, for the for the lack of preparation. I also think the Biden administration will uh, the Ukrainians have an argument that we were slow to get them precisely because of the dance that Scott describes. And also because, let's be honest, we thought the Russians were going to be in Kiev in three days. And it was partly the proof of concept that the Ukrainian armed forces were actually capable of defending the country uh, that, you know, caused American policymakers radically to rethink what our degree of investment in it. We had been preparing for, oh, can we support an insurgency there for a long period of time? We were thinking about it in very different terms. And I think that background sets up a lot of the points that Scott is making, that every time this dance happens, the Ukrainian reaction is, why are you guys so fucking slow with the weapons? And the U.S. reaction is, you know, hey, we've got some bigger picture issues here that we've got to think through. And both sides are right. Our thanks to the good folks at Rational Security for chatting with us. Also, if you're a fan of our editor-in-chief, Ravi Agrawal, who also hosts FP Live and the podcast Global Reboot, which, if you listen to the show, you've heard. Well, in any case, you're in luck, because Ravi is going to be on Rational Security in just a few weeks. That's it for Foreign Policy Playlist. If you like what you heard, please follow us. And if you want to suggest a great podcast, you can email us at podcasts at foreignpolicy.com. This show is produced by Maria Jimena-Aragon, Rosie Julin, and Rob Sachs. I'm Laura Rossbrow-Tellum. Thank you so much for listening. Till next week. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. It is a truth universally acknowledged that it is always the right time to read, talk, and think about Pride and Prejudice. But why is it this book that we universally acknowledge? Why has Pride and Prejudice lasted for over two centuries as the most famous romance novel of all time? This season of Hot and Bothered, award-winning journalist Lauren Sandler and me, Vanessa Zoltan, are looking closely at Pride and Prejudice, interviewing experts and trying to figure out what this book has taught generations of readers about love. Listen to Hot and Bothered wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Acast.com.